welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live in Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, let's make a deal with storytellers Bonnie Erickson, Noah Seipel, Angel Zaid, and Jeff Turner. They all shared their stories inspired by the theme, Let's Make a Deal, from our soundstage for an online audience. It's game time and it's story time. Bonnie Erickson. Hi. Well, I feel like I should introduce myself a little differently. I feel like I should say, hi, my name is Bonnie Erickson, and I'm addicted to getting a deal. I wish I was kidding. I think it's been, I don't know, I'm actually going to have to guess at this, but five years, three months, two days, something like that, since I actually gave up my addiction. But I can remember it like it was yesterday. It would start on a Sunday morning, and I would get up way before the rest of my family, and I would eagerly run out to the end of the driveway where I would pick up not one but eight copies of the Sunday paper. And I would gather them into a happy little bundle and I would almost skip back into the house anticipating the ritual that would happen every Sunday. And I would sit down at the kitchen table and I would stack all my eight newspapers, take off the rubber bands and stick them in a stack. And then I would take up the first paper and I would rifle through all the black and white papery stuff until I got to the glorious glossies and they would just be filled with bargainy goodness and I would take out the coupon inserts from the rest of the glossies so separate it from the store ads and then I would do that with all seven papers and then the genius thing would happen I would stack all eight copies of those coupon inserts page by page so that when you cut it out, you actually got eight copies of each coupon. And I would cut out every single one of them, whether I thought I would use them or not, because you never know. And then what I would do is I would take out my favorite part of this whole thing, the pink binder. It was six inches big and it was pink and vinyl and it has zipper on it and it was double ringed it was like a extreme couponers trapper keeper and you would open it up and the right side was for non-grocery coupons and the left side was for grocery coupons and I would click in baseball card sleeves and the grocery side actually had tabs on it and it was sorted by aisle of course and I would take all those coupons and I would put them where the baseball cards would normally go and then I would, I'm getting so excited. And then I would um, log on to my favorite couponing website, a thriftymom.com. And she would tell me what deals were out there for me today. And she would list it by store. And I would, there were so many stores to go through, but my favorite stores were Rite Aid, which had like the most liberal couponing policies. And I mean, cause you had to be like a coupon ninja to go to Walgreens. And then I also liked Albertsons. That was pretty lucrative. So I would look through her list and she would tell me how to stack store coupons, manufacturer coupons, sales, buy one, get one, catalog 
Catalinas, which if you don't know. So what those are, are those are those coupons you get with your store receipt. And it's actually like a magical formula that makes it come out that nobody knows except for a thrifty mom. And so I would then be ready to go to the store. So I would print out, I would copy and paste all those deals onto a Word document, print it, and take it with my binder and all, you know, the Rite Aid and Albertsons ads. And I would go to Rite Aid first and... This is kind of where the crazy starts, although I I probably subscribing to eight newspapers is where it started. But I would get to Rite Aid's parking lot and there would be always there would be like five cars in the parking lot. But we kind of scattered around because we all know that we're couponers, but nobody wants to admit it. And we're all trying to act cool like we're not going to just be like walking with purpose when we see the the clerk unlock the door. And so, so you walk with purpose to the door and and uh, I'm making like a mental priority list in my head because these other couponers are behind me. Hopefully they're behind me. And I'm trying to think which deals are most important to me because I've got to get to those first. And often I would end up, it was usually the toothpaste, you'd end up in front of the toothpaste next to another couponer. And, you know, she and I would just stand there trying to act like it wasn't that important to us, but it was, and there was a shortage on toothpaste and no you, no you, and we'd go through that little dance. And finally, we would just agree to split the deal. But inside, I'm vowing to beat that chick to that deal next time. And the whole time I'm going through the store from deal to deal, my eyes are scanning the store for people I might know, because honestly, this is a little bit embarrassing what I do. I don't want anybody to know about it. So I get done with Rite Aid and I have just enough time to get to church. And so I head back to the house. But on the way to the house, I'm passing by Albertsons. And what if all those other couponers are also on the way to Albertsons? And while I'm in church, they get all this stuff. So I'm just going to take a second. So I go into Albertsons and an hour later, I've got all my bags from Albertsons and now we've missed church and my couponing situation has now been the demise of my family's spiritual health. So I forget all that though when I get home and I walk down the hall to the closet that I have made for all my deals and I have all my bags and I'm standing in front of the closet and I'm lining them up first one first out and uh, I have so much stuff in that closet I still have so much stuff in that closet you guys it's been like I said over five years and I have Vaseline brand lotion like you wouldn't believe and feminine hygiene products and uh, I haven't bought that stuff for years I would save like $300 a month just on toiletries and so I'd line them up like little, you know, shampoo and lotion bottle soldiers in the closet. And it was just so exciting. And so then I was done. But I'm not done because at some point during the week, I'm going to overcome the embarrassment of what I do. And I'm going to break out that binder at work in the lunchroom in front of my coworkers. Because now I'm going to do the happy little dance where I'm taking out all the expired coupons And I just get such an achievement high when I get that binder all clean. And it's totally good coupons and it's clean for next Sunday. And uh, it's just great. And I mean, I think I've kind of already hinted. There's a degree of shame and angst that comes with this habit. I mean, what if, what if I get a good deal, but it's not the best deal I could have gotten? And what if I use a coupon this week, but there's a better, better deal next week with that same coupon? And what if I 
mess up the deal when I'm trying to work it out at the cash register and I'm holding up the line or like I said, somebody sees me with my giant binder in the grocery store. So at some point I realized that the crazy is outweighing the deal and I've got to stop. And so as painful as it was, I actually canceled my subscription to all eight copies of that newspaper. But I still had a lot of coupons in that binder. So I had a coworker that wanted to have that binder and I gave it to her reluctantly, painfully. And I know, to this day, I know she didn't use those coupons and there were expired coupons in that binder and it sucks so bad. And it was so hard to quit because people enable you. My coworkers would give me newspapers and I don't know at what point Meridian Press started throwing a free paper in my driveway and it had coupon inserts in it. But even now, I actually feel empowered these years later when I buy something I know I could get for free or for a good deal, but I don't use a coupon. That is such a good feeling now. Or when I go out to my driveway and I pick up that dang Meridian Press free paper and as I walk back into the house, I just toss it willy-nilly into the recycling bin. Because let's make a deal has actually turned into, no thanks, I'll just pay full price. All right, take it away, Noah. Well, I would say that my adolescence um, was very pale and very male. And like a lot of young men of my generation that grew up in Eastern Idaho, Northern Utah, rural Montana, there weren't a lot of options. And when I was a senior in high school, as you know, time started to evolve that I needed to make a plan, I was really coming up short. Well, lo and behold, one day the phone rang and on the other end was an army recruiter telling me that it was time to make a deal. And, uh, you know, I mulled over everything that he was telling me, just the job security and future marketable skills and a paid for education and, you know, room and board and, and paid training. And I was getting really excited. And in return, all I really needed to provide was, you know, just a young body willing to take orders and follow direction. And so I signed up, I signed that contract and I got an all expenses paid to Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And as I got to reception there, I remember a yellow line and standing with all of the other recruits and crossing over into this green machine and everything seemed to be what was agreed upon. You know, I, I was there, they were feeding me, they gave me clothes. Uh, I remember the day we went and got haircuts and I sat in the chair and they shaved off all my locks. And that was my first kind of insight to that. I may have gotten more than I bargained for. <clears throat> and what I found there as we all came together as a group of new recruits was this just unexplored diversity that I had not experienced in my youth. And you know, there's a movie called Jack Reacher who says there's really like four types of people who join the military. One is uh, those that have a family history, those that are true patriots and that are willing to serve, those that just need a job, and those that are seeking the legal means to kill another person. 
And I could tell you that I found all four of those individuals in existence. But what I found beyond that was color and sexual orientation and life experience and education. And my mind was just being opened. And so, you know, I remember getting on a bus and being told to put my head between my legs so we couldn't see where we were being driven to. And, a, you know, six, 10 drill sergeant, just muscles rippling and a gravelly voice tell us, listen, boys, I already know I'm going to hell, but I'm going to go there to take over. And I figured, you know what? I can play this game. I know what hypermasculinity looks like. And I know what an A-type, you know, personality is supposed to do. But as for those eight weeks of basic training, you know, this crucible experience exposed me to people's vulnerabilities and to my own vulnerabilities. And that really started to stick. And so as my, as you know, the deal I made started to come to fruition, you know, I got an education and I got paid and I got room and I got bored and I got an opportunity to spend some sun and sand filled vacations in the Middle East I was doing everything they asked me to do. <clears throat> but in this way, I felt like it was a little more than what I had initially been sold on. And, you know, I was also fulfilling more than the obligation that I had signed a contract to do. I started to realize that, you know, the military was this cross section of the fabric of America that from every town and community and every walk of life came people to military service. And, you know, as things started to evolve and we repealed the don't ask, don't tell policy, and we introduced all genders to come into the combat arms, I really started to champion that and to fight for rights of those who weren't so much, you know, vocalized or spoken for and really started to, give the army more than they bargained for, to be honest with you. And today, as I look back at that, at those experiences and that have made me who I am today, and today when we, you know, culturally face these big issues of gender equality, of, you know, uh, quality under the criminal justice system, particularly here in Boise, Idaho, uh, where we still largely have a you know, frankly, male and pale society, uh, I think it, what I experienced in my, you know, just small opportunity of military service is just the micro example of a macro opportunity to, to renegotiate the deal and to, to rewrite our contracts. And I have, you know, probably in my life, two big experiences when that impacted me when I was once in Iraq and uh, we had just repealed the don't ask, don't tell policy. And I, I was charged to explain this new change in policy to my company. And we gathered up in, in a briefing room and I was explaining what that meant. And I was met with some resistance with people who had strong gender biases and strong army biases. You know, they say there's only one color in the army and that's green but frankly, I never heard any of my black friends say that. And as I was talking about this um, repeal of don't ask, don't tell, I realized something. And I said to the people under my command, you know, 60, 75 years ago, our grandfathers were gathered in a room similar like this. 
that talked about and and their commanding officer had to say to them we are going to integrate all ethnicities if you're black if you're puerto rican if you're hispanic if you're native american you're going to serve openly in any job that the army has available to you and i told them now is our opportunity that any member of the lgbtq s plus community that wants to serve in our military now can serve openly and we should embrace it. And it's just been one of those hallmark moments in my life that demonstrated to me that uh, change is a good thing and that we don't always have to just accept the deal that we originally penned and that, you know, we can always go back and renegotiate better options. Please welcome Angel Zaid. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and even more elated that Christmas is in just a few days. However, my feelings haven't always been that enthusiastic about Christmas. Two years ago was probably the worst Christmas of my life. I was actually a little drunk at a friend's house thinking about how absolutely miserable I was using her as a sounding board for my pity party. I was with her, which is awesome, and her husband and her family, but I didn't have my own. I was feeling alone. Unfortunately, I was alone because I had made a really bad deal. I had exchanged a lot of my personal life with somebody. For many years, I had told him, hey, let's do this. You move out and you can come in my house whenever you want. Really, really bad deal, but I thought it was awesome. He's gonna move out, he didn't leave. He moved next door, he tortured me. It was horrible. And when I tried to get a protection order, it got thrown out. When I tried to get custody of my kids, the lawyer was too busy. It was awful. I mean, ugh. And I used my friend as my little sounding board. We talked about all these different things and how horrible it was. But the reality came down to, I couldn't have a Christmas as a pity party. She asked me what I was going to do. And that's where I really stepped back and said, I have no idea. But there's a mom part of me. So when I'm having a tantrum, I mean, when my kids are having a tantrum, but wait a second, I was the kid. I was the toddler in a restaurant losing my mind. I was distraught. I didn't know what I was doing. I was a mess. I couldn't be distracted with tablets or toys. And I was doing it at a Christmas party. And out of the grave, my little mom version of me was like, nope, we're done. Step back. You've got to make a change. It's either going to be amazing or awful, but really could it get worse? So I set out two options. I bounced them back. Well, I can move. That would be great. I could start over. I could be independent. That would be awesome. I haven't had that in years. I've been a mother since I was 17. That's a long time. I had a seven-year-old and twin two-year-old little boys. But they had their father who said he didn't need me. I have family. I have skills. I could get a job and move. It would be hard, but I could do it. Or 
the reality was I could stay and I could deal with him, which would be probably still a nightmare. Not a great guy. In fact, my, my friend told me, well, he's horrible. Yeah, yikes, he is horrible, but it's all I've got. I couldn't really decide. And it was really hard to think of what I would lose if I took the option to leave, which, again, independent, I would lose my mother identity, which was a huge part of my youth. Oh, but if I stay, it's going to be so horrible. I'll have to give up my own identity as an independent, strong person who is working and taking care of everything. But I couldn't. I couldn't think of what to do, but I don't know. It was really scary. It was awful. And even now thinking about it is terrifying. And my best friend said, it's okay. It sucks. Life sucks. It was almost thinking of 2020 sucks. Except I was scared. And I'm, I was so lost. And then I realized, well, God, he sucks. He does suck. What if my kids grow up and suck? I hated myself at the time I was so depressed, but then I was like, ooh, the rest of the world would have three new people to suck? And that would be my fault. Three little tiny terrorizers? Mm-mm. I couldn't do it. I made that decision kind of out of a self-hatred. I'm going to stay, but I have to figure out what will make it work. So I made a deal with myself. I'll fake him. I'll still be independent. I'll tell him I forgive him. But now I'm going to have this chance that I won't have three little demons enter the world on purpose. <laughs> and that's kind of what I did, except the deal got even better because I made the deal with myself. I'm going to be independent, but I'm going to pretend like I believe him. And I made a deal with him. I'll pretend nothing happened. We exchange kids. I mom them, live my best life. Perfect. About a month later, he got arrested and went to prison. So I kind of won. 2019, I had my kids to myself with full custody, which is pretty crazy when you're 24, working a job, paying all the bills. And now it's 2020, and I get to do it all over again because two years in a row, I'm a winner. And I'll continue to win every Christmas. So Christmas is awesome. And I'm pretty, pretty happy to be able to say out of how awful 2020 has been that my Christmas is going to be amazing. And I expect amazing every year. Thank you. Uh, please welcome to our stage, Mr. Jeff Turner. So my name is Jeff, and I came to Boise a few years ago. I was uh, so excited to be here that uh, I just showed up. Uh, I didn't have a job. I didn't have a place to live. And I think I knew maybe six people, and um, we weren't on talking terms. So I was very excited to be here. So when I came to Boise, it was just it was very difficult because I didn't really have a plan. I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, I didn't know how I was going to live, how I was going to survive, but you know, but I had a, I had a goal. Um, 
And because of that, I just, you know, I just had a lot going on. So the, so why I came to Boise was to reunite with my kids. Uh, me and their mom went through a separation and she moved out here to Boise to live with her parents. And, um, a few months later I had followed, but when I came to Boise, um, I was just all over the place. My decision-making process was all jacked up. And the reason for that is because I was struggling with drug addiction. So the reason why I came or how I ended up here is because I got mixed up in a really bad situation in Salt Lake where um, my life was in danger. So I just immediately came to Boise just to hopefully start over um, and to reunite with my kids. I knew that like me and me and their mom weren't going to get back together, but I could at least be close enough to my kids. I could be in their lives. I could go to their baseball games. I could go to parent teacher conferences, all these things. But unfortunately with, uh, with drug addiction is that, um, imagine being in a room with a light switch and the light going on and off. There was the, the one moment where I wanted to get clean. I wanted to be in recovery. I wanted to get back in my kid's life. And then there was the other side where I was just all about the high. Like I was addicted to that, that rush from methamphetamines and, and, and heroin and alcohol and just, just that wild lifestyle. And it was just back and forth and back and forth. And the result of that, unfortunately, was getting hired and fired from jobs, being around people that were uh, not, not good support, um, being in and out of homeless shelters, sleeping on the street, um, just, just all the craziness. But eventually it all just came to a head when I just got sick and tired of being sick and tired. So I want to paint this picture of what sick and tired and being sick and tired of being sick and tired is um, just being completely on the street and being alone um, and not having anyone to go to um, the shelters, not wanting you in their shelter because, you know, I was a threat and I was a problem and I was a danger to others. Um, and you guys can see me now. I'm, I'm 220 pounds at, at the time when I was on the street, I was 140 pounds. And with, with drugs and alcohol, that's what it does. It literally sucked all that was morally good out of me. So I'm at, I'm at a point where, um, 4th of July in 2016, where it, it was, it was it. And it, I, I, I would love to tell you that I had enough, but I think like everything just had crumbled to a point where like I had no choice but to turn around and just being able to see myself in the mirror and, and just the, the shell of what I was. I mean, I could smell my own. I remember smelling my own body odor where it was bad enough to gag a maggot. <laughs> You know, and like, and just my skin being scaly and, and it was just like, you know, I, you know, I, I went to college. I did a lot of good things. I was a, a college athlete. Um, I was a youth sports coach. I've done a lot of good in my life and I, I didn't want my final chapter to be like a shriveled up shell of a man homeless in Boise, Idaho. So, you know, I made, I made some decisions. I decided to, to just get myself into rehab, um, and, and, and make some changes. And like, the, you know, the first step 
in rehab is you got to commit to something that's greater than yourself. And for me, that was Jesus Christ. And, um, and just realizing that I can't do it on my own and that I'm powerless in my ability to uh, control my tendency to do the wrong thing. So from there, everything, everything just began to change. And it was a lot of work, but things began to change. But for me, um, not, it wasn't just quitting drugs. It's, it's changing my life completely. Um, changing who I hang with, changing, you know, my decisions, being able, maybe being able to understand my environment. So from there, it was, it was an uphill climb, but it was a good uphill climb. And as I was making that uphill climb, I was getting stronger. And the most important thing for me was to reunite with my kids. But I wanted them to see their father as someone who was strong, someone who was changed, and someone that was ready to be in their lives. But it, it went without – it went – it is um, – didn't go without difficult times. Um, it had been, I was out of, I was out of my kids' lives for three years and I had to go through, uh, I had to go the legal route because I had to fight for them because their, their mother at the time just was not going to allow me to be back in their lives. You know, I had burned, I had burned every bridge possible. So the legal route was the way to go. So after that point, when that was all said and done, I had, I had, uh, I had earned and I had won the right to see my kids again. However, I had to go through therapy and I had to go through supervised visits. But I want to take you to that moment when I first saw my kids after being out of their lives for three years. Because, yes, that was at, that was at a point where, you know, I had won. Um, but it's there was a lot of anxiety built up to that. So. When I, when I went to go see the therapist, I had to get, so the, the appointment was at 12 o'clock. I had to get there at 1145 because I have to be in the building before um, their mother and the kids show up. That way there's no issues in the parking lot. So when I'm sitting in the, the therapist's room, I, there's all these thoughts that are going through my mind. Like, you know, how big are they? What do they sound like? What's their hair like? You know, what kind of clothes are I going to be wearing? And it grew even more when I heard the door open and I heard the van door. It was like a minivan. It slid open. I could hear that clearly. And I could hear them get out and I could hear the ruffling of clothes, jackets, winter jackets and all that stuff. And then I could hear the, another door open. And then all of that, just to that moment when I saw him. They, I see them come in and they're just, they look completely different than when I last remember them three years ago. And it was, it was just wild. Now it wasn't the, the typical moment where you'd see in a movie where you can run and hug. It wasn't like that. Cause I wasn't allowed to touch them unless they, unless they initiate contact. So it was very hard for me to do. But the first thing that came out of my mouth is I love you. I told both my kids that I love them. And that I want to be in their lives and I'm ready to work and just do whatever I can to just to be their dad. And from from that moment, though. Right when I said I love you, all of the anxiety, all the nervousness just disappeared because I was confident at that point. You know, I had a couple years of sobriety. I had made some 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 good changes in I had a great support system and 
the moment that I'll remember, and this is a moment that a therapist pointed out. I didn't even realize it at that time. We played a game, we played the game perfection and we we're putting the little pieces in and, and all that. And I was able to get all the pieces in before the game popped. And, um, my daughter said, dad won. And it, it was, it was powerful because she just acknowledged me as her dad. And which is not something that I, I guess, according to the therapist, that doesn't happen much, but you know, I was normally going to stop there, but here's the thing. It wasn't so much that I won. My kids won too. The therapist won the family courts won because reunification is a beautiful thing. And just with all the confidence that I've been able to build up just in, just in my own walk, you know, if, if God is with me, who can be against me? Thank you. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsors, Radio Boise and Boise State Public Radio. Podcast production by Stephen Baldessari. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Find out how to participate in our live show at storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.